<laughs> I'm filling in for Mike this week. He is on vacation, hardest working man in radio, well-deserved time off. And yes, I, Jess Brady, the usual morning anchor here on 980 CFPL, am filling in. They've given me the keys to the booth and let me sit down. Well, I mean... The door doesn't have any keys, actually, but you get it. You get the picture I'm trying to paint. Uh, I'm filling in, and for the rest of this week, which is only today and tomorrow, this week is going by so quickly, and Mike will be back on Tuesday. Not Monday. Monday is Victoria Day, the long weekend. Uh, But on Tuesday, he will be back in his rightful place at this hour all of the rest of next week to chat about what's happening in London and the surrounding area. I feel like each day this week, I've given you a little weather update as the top of the show. And today is not going to be an exception. So we've got partly cloudy skies out there. Lots of sunshine, though. It's really getting through those clouds. Currently sitting at 17 degrees, which is quite comfortable. I was out at the uh, YMCA Women of Excellence Gala last night and wore a dress out without a coat. And when I left the event at 930, it was totally comfortable outside. Now, I usually run a little warm anyway, so I'm not one to always need a coat, even if it is a little chilly. Uh, But it was nice to feel like those summer conditions were on their way. There's hope. There's a light at the end of this chilly spring tunnel. So we're on our way. So we have a busy show ahead of us today. In the next couple of hours, we're going to talk about a lot of different topics. Off the top, though, news from the provincial government yesterday about funding changes that they are set to make for uh, stem cell research. The plan is apparently to cut $5 million in annual funding for the Ontario Institute for Regenerative Medicine, the OIRM. Now, what that means is that uh, scientists, researchers who are coming up with fantastic new ideas on how to utilize stem cells to improve our health and help treat diseases and chronic conditions could be facing an issue when they need early startup funds. Let me allow Peter Griffin from Family Guy to explain how I feel about this. How long was I in there? About five minutes. Why are we not funding this? Mm Mm-hmm. That's right. We are currently funding it. Why on earth would we stop funding it? That's how I feel. (laughs) So this news came down yesterday from the the province that this is their plan that... uh, eventually over like the next year, that money is is not going to be there for renewal next year. So we're talking 2020. Now, to talk about the impact of this, on the line right now, I have Dr. Duncan Stewart, and he is the president and scientific director of the Ontario Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Dr. Stewart, thank you for joining us. Dr. Stewart, thank you so much for taking a few moments to speak with us this afternoon about this. My pleasure. Now, when you first heard the news, I mean, it was announced publicly yesterday on Wednesday uh, about the government's plan to cut funding uh, for the stem cell research. What was your initial reaction to to that news? Obviously, a great disappointment. I think uh, a lot of excitement has been building up about what we're doing. I think uh, the sense is that we've been very successful at moving uh, these uh, stem cell fundamental research prog- uh, projects into impactful clinical uh, treatments. And uh, we're looking forward to getting the results of a, um, uh, a rigorous uh, uh, review process. International review uh, panel is, is coming. In fact, they're working uh, right now to uh, evaluate what we're doing. So we're looking forward to those results. And even before this process had been done, we, uh, we hear that we're not going to be funded. So that was devastating. 
No doubt. I can't imagine being in your position and especially given the prominence that stem cell research has, has kind of risen to in, the, in, in recently in, in the last few decades, like it's becoming much more uh, widely understood and uh, the potential there for uh, breakthroughs and advancements is, is much more um, widely talked about and understood even by the general population. Uh, in case people aren't aware of exactly uh, what um, uh, OIRM does specifically, uh, could you, uh, I guess, give us a little bit of a synopsis, a rundown of, of the function of the group. Yeah, so our mission is really to identify the most promising um, uh, treatment, stem cell and regenerative medicine treatments that are being uh, developed. And then uh, um, we identify that through a very rigorous uh, review process and then um, help support those programs uh, to, to, to get from sort of uh, the, the lab medicine uh, to the bedside into clinical therapies. And as you may know, that's a, a, a very uh, a difficult uh, journey. It's the so-called valley of death. Many projects just don't advance, not because they're not promising, not because they couldn't represent good treatment, but because there's so many pitfalls along the way. So, so we, we, we help them in a variety of ways. We fund the research, and that's important, although we have, have a overall modest funding. But we also help navigate. We work with the investigators, uh, and we help them navigate through the translational landscape and the regulatory landscape. So, so we accelerate and, uh, and uh, increase the success of these projects. Now, two things that I wanted to uh, address from from the the news yesterday uh, was that the government is saying that um, that first that the private sector can be uh, you know counted upon to kind of come forward with the funds to help this research. But in some of the coverage that I've read, it, it's saying that that's very unlikely because private uh, companies don't usually get involved until the results are are really or the promise, I guess, is is much more known. So to even get to that point, take funding initially, and that's where your organization comes in, correct? You're absolutely right. So, so the private sector is very important, and for many of our projects, we, we, we are hoping that they will be picked up by the private sector and to be successful commercialization. But to get there, you need to show proof of principle. You need to de-risk these projects. You need to show that, uh, that they can work um, before the private sector is willing to make that investment. So, so you're absolutely right. The public money allows us to do that. And we've already had a number of notable successes in that regard. So, uh, you know, the model is really working. Now, the other thing that kind of, um, I guess, my ears perked up at was the minister on the file, I believe, uh, who said this, that um, the previous government had been handing out millions of dollars, uh, sort of characterizing it as a willy-nilly process, and they were saying there was an oversight. In my mind, I think the step that they've taken is sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. If they're not, if they're concerned about uh, oversight, why not improve or, or increase, I should say, measures that would make the government more comfortable, rather than just cutting off the, the very promising program that they have in place. I'm not sure what what is being referred to. Certainly, uh, our institute is, is overseen very carefully by the ministry. We have uh, frequent meetings. Uh, we provide uh, frequent reports. Um, so uh, I'm not sure what what he was referring to in that statement. Certainly, and, and I'm sure that it's. Um you know, very frustrating given how regimented this whole process is to hear comments like that. It's, it's, uh, it's first of all, confusing for, <laughs> for you and your colleagues because yeah. of the work you do. And also it just doesn't seem like it's, it's representative at all of, of what actually goes on the reality of the situation. 
moving forward, um, you know, I, I, OIRM has a little bit of time before its its current funding uh, is set to end. What's your hope moving forward then? Is, is there going to be, uh, you know, an effort to try and change the minds of, of the provincial government and, and the players there? So I think we're going to look at every option. I, I don't know how successful we'll be in changing minds of government, but we're certainly working with all of our partners. Um, we're uh, uh, working with uh, the private sector, the public sector, trying to find ways that we can keep at least some of the activities that we're doing uh, going. But we're not, you know, uh, we're not just funding the research. We're also providing value by uh, facilitating the whole process, by helping educate, by by filling in the gaps uh, in, uh, for instance, uh, the expertise for cell manufacturing, the expertise for regulatory filing, all of that. We we we. Uh, we work very closely with our community. So we'd like to try to keep as much of that going as possible. Certainly. And just so we're aware, the timeline then for, for the uh, organization's current funding, it, it runs out next year, right? In 2020? That's right. The end of March 2020, yes. Okay. So there's still a little bit of time to obviously uh, make those yeah. contingency plans as you noted. Yeah, that's right. So we do have a bit of a runway. So we're going to try to make the best uh, use of that. And uh, I think uh, a lot can happen in a year. So we'll see. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Stewart, thank you so much for your time today and, uh, you know, kind of shining a light on this current situation and and helping us to understand uh, the work that OIRM is doing. And uh, uh, I wish you the best of luck as you move forward making uh, those plans. And and hopefully the situation is uh, looks different in a year from now. Thank you so much, Jess, for your interest. Now we need to take a quick break on London Live. When we come back, we're talking about the long weekend and camping, but exactly what you can and cannot ingest for your pleasure (laughs) in terms of uh, alcohol and uh, pot intake. So we will be back to talk about that in just a few minutes on London Live. Ruse. Lies. It's not Mike Stubbs. It's me, Jess Brady. Uh, I am filling in for Mike this week. He's on vacation. And next up on the show... We're going to be talking about something that relates to anyone who's planning on taking a mini vacation this weekend for the Victoria Day long weekend. We have uh, that coming up. It's very exciting. Most people will get uh, three days off. They're Saturday, they're Sunday, and they're Monday. It's kind of like the first big uh, long weekend of the summer season. Obviously, we are still technically in springtime. All of you aficionados, please do not email me and be like, we're still in spring. It's not summer. Uh, Because I know it's still springtime. Um, But we do have the start of the summer camping season. So what we are going to talk about next is what you need to know in terms of consumption of intoxicating substances at our provincial parks over this weekend. And joining me on the line is Sheila Weeb. She's a park marketing and education specialist with the provincial parks in this neck of the woods. And she's going to tell us a little bit more about what we need to know specifically relating to cannabis consumption. Sheila, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us this afternoon. I know that it's a busy weekend ahead for everyone there. It certainly is, yeah. Getting ready for the first long weekend. And this is the first long weekend of camping, I'm pretty sure, since we've had recreational legalization of pot. Um, And a lot of people will probably want to enjoy that while they're out and about. But there are rules to keep in mind uh, for doing so, especially at our provincial parks. Right. It's uh, currently right now the... uh Legislation for uh, um, smoking marijuana or smoking um, cannabis is the same as the smoke um, laws. Uh, so it's uh, right now. I should sort of step back a little bit, maybe. Is that the uh, 
within the um, some of the parks in the area and in the province are currently under a complete alcohol ban for um, for this weekend, and then it um, opens up, and then you're free to have alcohol on your uh, registered site. Um, so people are wondering how that translates to then cannabis, which is why we're talking. Um, but the currently the smoking um, of cannabis uh, or vaping doesn't apply to that alcohol part of it. It's a different legislation. So you are allowed to uh, enjoy uh, cannabis on your site and anywhere um, that you would be allowed to smoke or vape. So where you can't smoke or vape would be including buildings, um, children's playgrounds within 20 meters of a playground, sporting areas, swimming areas, that sort of thing. Well, it does make it fairly, um, I guess, easy to remember then where you can and can't uh, line up, if you will. Uh, but yeah, a lot of people will probably be wondering why is it uh, that you can smoke your pot because it is like an intoxicating substance, uh, but you're not allowed to, uh, you know, imbibe with some alcohol. Is there, is it, is it just like, do you have any insight into why that is the case? Or is it just kind of like a bit of a loophole right now because it applies to smoking instead of in, in, ingesting alcohol? Right. I think it's where the legislation is going to get, like, we're going to catch up a little bit, but I think it's odd that there's not um, that consideration. So, yes, I believe, you know, a little bit of a loophole, um, but so far so good. Like, some of the parks have been open, so um, so when legalization became um, available, there were some parks that were available and continued. So all winter long, some of the parks were available um, and open. And we haven't had any issues, not that there's been, you know, winter camping isn't, um, you know, as busy as the summer camping. So, um, but some parks have already been open. So they've been open for Easter, let's say, and there's been no issues. Um, So we are just, we're keeping an eye on it and um, we'll be able to potentially uh, make uh, changes if uh, necessary. So I guess that kind of lends to my next question then for people who, you know, hear about the alcohol um, prohibition for this weekend. Why is it that there is that measure in place? Is it simply because we don't want people going wild on the the first like real long weekend of the summer season? Or is there another reason to to kind of uh, explain why there is uh, the, the ban on alcohol? It's um, the ban on alcohol has been a tradition. It's been in place for uh, at least 20 years, if I can remember correctly. Um, And it's expanded. More parks have uh, taken on that uh, ban. It just helps to keep the parks more family friendly. Um, It's kind of like when the snow disappears from the ground, uh, drivers tend to get a little crazy. Um, Or when there is first snowfall, you know, they don't they don't remember quite how to monitor things. So it's uh, when it's the first long weekend, it people do tend to you know um, not be uh, respectful of other campers. And so this is um, one of the methods that we've used, and it's been um, successful in uh, reducing the number of incidences and keeping the, the the campers safe, the environment safe, and being respectful to other campers. Well, that's that's some good insight there, and and I, I enjoy your your comparison to uh, uh, traffic and weather and that that yeah, kind of complication. It, I, yeah. yeah, it's just it's uh, it, it's just like now that university and college students are out, um, maybe they haven't. You know, this is the first long weekend, and they are going to let their hair down a little bit. And uh, we just uh, it's been a traditional thing, and uh, the enforcement staff um, have put this in place, and it has proven itself to be effective. 
All right. And then we'll see in the future how things go with um, uh, with with the consumption of pot and whether that will be subject to uh, further further restrictions as as we go along. And as you said, right. as things catch up with the legislation. Right. And it, then people should remember that um, any uh, consumption of whether it's, you know, outside of this weekend, but um, cannabis or alcohol, no driving, no going on, you know, boating or anything like that. Uh, be, you know, responsible. So that's where it's going to change. We're going to go through a bit of a uh, growing period and understanding uh, how the, the cannabis and the alcohol affects, um, you know, your body and, and keeping safe in a recreational area. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, Sheila, now that we've covered off uh, sort of the do's and don'ts of this weekend in terms of uh, uh, intoxicating substances and what we can and can't consume, um, let's talk a little bit about how busy you guys are, because this, of course, as we've said, is kind of the first long weekend of the of the summer camping season. Uh, I mean, sites, they're, they're probably few and far between right now, eh? the ones that are still available. That is correct. We uh, For Ontario Parks, you can make a reservation up to five months prior to the arrival date. Uh, so long weekends are one of the very first things that people have marked on their calendar and they wake up five months to the day prior to every long weekend and snap up those favorite sites. Uh, electrical sites are the first to go and then the non-electrical sites will then slowly be um, you know, taken up. So we have usually each park has a, approximately 80 to 85% uh, reservable sites but they'll leave about 15% or so um, for first-come, first-serve. However, (laughs) for any long weekend, if you don't have a reservation and you aren't able to take time off and get to the park on a Thursday or even a Wednesday, forget it. Those sites are already gone. There's no sense in packing up and and trekking out to your nearest park even. They're just gone. Yeah, your goose is pretty much cooked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do have to plan out a little bit, and it's um, you know be there. And the website will say um, the reservation site will have um, a red X on it if it's gone, a green if it's available, or a yellow if it's a non-reservable. So those non-reservables, you may see five of them available when you're looking on the website, and then two hours later they're gone. Yeah, and so it's really a, a roll of the dice, if you will, if you're if you're trying to just show up on the day of, because you could, yeah. like you said, you could have an availability, and then once they actually get out to the park, it's gone. So yeah, and then people tend to call. They will call the park and go, "Can you hold one of those for me?" And it's like, "Well, that would be reserving it." Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, we it, can't do that. It's sort of like that Seinfeld episode. I don't think you understand what a reservation means. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it's going to be, uh, you know, a very busy weekend, Sheila, as you said. So yeah. best course of action is uh, just to get out there early and try and and reserve what you can if there are still reservable spots there. Otherwise, maybe plan for another weekend. Right. And, and keep in mind, too, you don't have to necessarily, so camping might be out of the question, but you can still go for a hike and enjoy some of the activities that the park may have to offer, um, some, you know, hiking trails, there's some programs going on, and those are all listed on the Ontario Parks website. Absolutely. Well, Sheila, thank you so much for your time today, and I hope you have a fantastic long weekend. I hope so, too. You, too. Thanks. All right. Yes, there's lots going on uh, in this area for the 
Victoria Day long weekend. I'm sure that uh, 980 CFPL is going to have uh, continued coverage over the next day or so and also through the weekend of all the cool things that are happening over the long weekend. Uh, We'll be chatting with uh, some more local conservation authorities about the number of uh, campsites that are still available. We got an email this morning that there's really only like more than... I don't know, a couple dozen left at uh, Fanshawe Conservation Area. And those are the ones with no electric hookup there. (laughs) So if you're going, you're roughing it for real. Um, But yeah, I mean, if you're going camping, why not? Go whole hog. Why not? Uh, So we'll see. We'll talk more about uh, long weekend fun coming up uh, probably tomorrow on this show. But obviously the newsroom will have plenty to say about what's open and closed over the long weekend and just different activities that are on tap, you know, fireworks, that sort of thing. Very exciting times ahead for this long weekend. We need to take a quick break for news with Jacqueline LaBelle. We will be back on London Live to talk about a cool initiative that's happening next week. It's called Mentally Chill. We'll have Emma Holden in studio to talk about that coming up on London Live. Welcome back to the program. It is indeed not Mike Stubbs. It's Jess Brady filling in for him this week. He's on vacation. Well-deserved time off. Hardest working man in radio. I keep saying it, but it's still true every time I say it. So it counts. Now, earlier this week, we've been we've been talking about a variety of issues, but we were talking about mental health yesterday, uh, specifically with um, children and making sure that parents have access to uh, programming that they need. And these are the types of topics that I really love talking about because we are raising awareness that needs to continue to be pushed forward and, and make sure that people know that they are not alone if they are dealing uh, with certain pressures in their lives or anxiety, depression. There is a whole community around to help people and make sure that um, they don't feel by themselves. And this next event that we're talking about that's coming up uh, next week, I believe on the 24th, and it is in support of mental health programming at LHSC, and it's called Mentally Chill. It's a coffee house. It's being hosted at John Paul II Catholic Secondary School, but it is for the entire community to attend. And it's a very cool event. And in studio with me right now, live, I have two lovely ladies who are deeply involved Involved in this program, we have Emma Holden. She's an organizer of Mentally Chill Chill Lounge, and we also have mental health nurse Christina from LHSC who are joining us. Thank you so much for joining us, ladies. Thank you Thank so you. much for having us. Yeah. <laughs> so first things here. first, let's talk a little bit about the inspiration for this Chill Lounge. How did this even become become a thing? Um. So for myself, uh, after the last. Actually, around this time, four years ago, I lost a really good friend of mine um, to suicide. And it wasn't until I graduated high school that I kind of started dealing with my own mental health issues. Um, The loss of him kind of triggered um, Mm -hmm. some other things in my life. And so I struggled for about a year and um, I was in and out of hospital. And I finally was referred to a program called the Dialectical Behavioral Therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a program that was desi- like designed for women who struggle with suicidal thoughts and then later they kind of realize that it um it's a great th- form of therapy for like a lot of different mental health issues um i myself struggle with something called borderline personality disorder and so dbt is really beneficial for the disorder that i live with and so i went through the program um and it took so long for me to get in and the wait list was really long mm-hmm. um 
And a lot of people just don't have that time to wait. I'm lucky and I have a great home life and great support system. Um, So I was always kept safe. And so my inspiration for this event is to try and create, you know, more awareness around the fact that we need to be putting more funding into these programs because a lot of people really need them. Absolutely. And that's one of the biggest pressures these days is that wait time for so many different programs, Mm -hmm. whether it's, uh, you know, inpatient uh, services or especially waiting for counseling. Uh, If you're if you're not in a a clinical setting, you know, you just are on a waiting list for for publicly uh, accessible counseling. Uh, If not, everyone has private insurance that they can afford to call up a a, a therapist and (laughs) say, can I get in? And and even those therapists who uh, are taking uh, people, you know, just if, if you go on your own, sometimes they have waiting because they're very busy like that's just the nature of things yeah 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 Yeah. so we've we've got now this great event let's talk specifically about what's coming up on the 24th that's next week so mentally chill lounge the coffee house (laughs) (laughs) yeah um so on the 24th uh the doors will open at Mm -hmm. 6 30 at seven o'clock um we will start the event we will have a great uh time of um Poetry, music, and other talents will also have an art show. And also there there will be the uh, the therapy dogs, right? Yep. St. John's Ambulance yep, therapy dogs. we have six dogs, dogs coming. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we're also going to have uh, the City Arts Center, who's going to be doing some uh, on-the-spot art. And our goal is to um, have people with mental health experience Come and present their talents and um, have a have a showcase of people that have lived with mental health. How it's not just mental health that defines them. So uh, it's for people with mental health issues, the community um, to look at mental health um, people with mental health issues in a different light. Certainly. And, and Christina, maybe, you know, as, as a nurse yourself with LHSE and you're a committee member uh, for this fantastic event, mm-hmm. we want to make sure we give you the proper title there. Uh, in your perspective, how important is it really to have that open dialogue uh, for people to know, as you said, that you are not defined by your, your mental health? I mean, yeah. that is a part of you, but it's, it is not the only part of you. Uh, I think it's vitally important. And I've been talking to Emma about some... Um, stigma that's still so present out there where, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, if we see someone breaking an arm um, on the street or, or falling, we run towards them and we want to help them. And if we see someone having a panic attack in, in public, we we don't know what to do with mm-hmm. that. We sort of tend to run away or avoid those people or someone, you know, talking to themselves on a corner. Um, so the stigma is very much out there. So we need to have these conversations and we need to see people as people, uh, instead of someone who's defined by a mental illness or struggle that they might be having. Absolutely. And Emma, you know, speaking as, as someone who has, you know, gone through this journey of, of mental health and, and working to, uh, you know, feel better within yourself, how does it feel to see this response of people coming together to enjoy this this chill lounge? I just love the name. I think it's, <laughs> it's really cool. It's all Emma's idea. Oh, her Very much her brainchild. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, It's really nice. I Last year, we did our first event and I got a lot of feedback from a lot of people saying that it was nice to feel in a space where people just understood what they were going through and you know living with mental illness myself I know that it can be really isolating and really challenging um, to kind of 
I don't know, to just feel like you have something to offer the world. Um, And so to be able to see people kind of channel their struggles into art or, you know, various things is really awesome to me. Absolutely. It's it's so amazing to see the the strength that is is showcased at events like this, because Mm -hmm. this idea and I think individuals, high profile individuals, especially have done a nice job of, of trying to make people aware of, of the, the the phrase that's coming to mind is sick, not weak. And that's that's mm-hmm. from Beautiful. a yeah. yeah. The, and that's uh, that's certainly not original to me. That's uh, I, I, his name escapes me at this point, but he's a very well respected sports commentator. In, and he has has said that about his own journey uh, with mental health. It's it's sick, not weak. It, you it takes extreme strength to move through this process of healing and understanding what's going on within yourself. I, I mean, Definitely. it's the idea that someone is weak because of that. Oh my my God! No, it's, yeah. the, it is the reverse. So yeah, it's it's fantastic to see this type of support coming out. And um, tell us a little bit about the proceeds from the evening. I think we we've mentioned it, but I think it bears repeating. Uh, money raised from this event is going towards local programming. Yep. So it's going to the uh, outpatient program called Dialectical Behavioral Therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, so the program is a transitional age, which is eighteen to twenty four, I believe. Um, And so that's kind of a, I think that's a new area that they're starting to develop therapy specifically for because they kind of found that they're, I don't know, you can't really, as for myself, I was put into an adult program originally and I can't relate to, you know, 40-year-old women who are going through divorces. It's Mm -hmm. just, it feels a little different when I was talking about my issues and stuff like that. So it's a lot nicer to have kind of a specific age group and to be around people that are all the same age. Um, and so the DBT is, uh, it's a program that it has four modules to it. So it goes through interpersonal effectiveness, distress tolerance, emotion regulation, and mindfulness. And so you learn different skills and kind of ways to cope through different scenarios in your life. Um, because someone who has a mental illness such as borderline personality disorder, everything is kind of like <laughs> 10 times more chaotic to me than it is to the average minded person. Um, and so kind of learning how to balance everything out and have like a baseline emotion is key. (laughs) Yeah. And that navigation process, as you're saying. Yeah, for sure. And I went through the program myself. I actually graduated last June. And honestly, like the change, it is crazy. Like I didn't notice it. That's probably not a good word to use. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) But it really, when I came out, just, I don't know, when situations arose, Mm -hmm. how I handle it now compared to before is way different vastly different yeah Yeah. well I think that's a testament to uh, the importance of the work that's being done and and how important supporting this event yeah London London (laughs) are you listening I hope so Um, that's why we love to talk about these these events and to try and build up as much uh, support and interest in what's going on because it is it's it's a fantastic cause and it's going towards programming that works uh, and is hugely important to people in this community and uh, you know hopefully that type of programming rather can spread to other communities in the discussions that I was having yesterday about um, mental health care for young children, mm-hmm. uh, some before the, even the age of 10. There are different hubs that are springing up across the country with different therapy methods and different communities are tapping into what's happening elsewhere. It's kind of the beauty of this day and age is that we are all very connected. We're like a mouse click away, a phone call away uh, from being able to access resources across the country. Um, so hopefully we continue to see the spread of that and 
uh, certainly we want to see everything go really, really well on the 24th. I'm just going to read off real quick some other stats. We have tickets are $10 for students, 15 for adults. And again, all proceeds are donated to the mental health programs at LHSC. Doors open at 6.30. Show starts at 7, correct? Yes. yes. Perfect. And at JP2, which is out on Oxford Street East. Well, Emma and Christina, thank you so much for joining us in studio today to talk about the Mentally Chill Coffee House. And best of luck with everything. We hope that it uh, goes really well. And there is a website, correct, as well? We want people yeah. to go to because you can always make a donation. If yes. you're busy on the 24th, <laughs> just go to the website and you can still support. Yes. So www.lhsf.ca slash mentally chill. Perfect. I've, and I've also said that I'd uh, name drop uh, the dearly beloved former uh, radio personality, Al Coombs. He is uh, going to be the MC for our event. Fantastic. So I know a lot of people miss his voice on the radio. So come on out and, and join us. He's a great guy. So it'll be uh, fantastic for him to be a part of it. And I'm so glad that uh, you're ga- gaining so much support for it. So thank you again to both of you for being in studio. Emma and Christina, best of luck on the 24th. Thank, Thank you so you much. So much. We've got to take a quick break. We'll be right back on London Live after this. Welcome back to the show. It is London Live on 980 CFPL Global News Radio. It is your Thursday afternoon edition of the show. Beautiful day out there. It's gorgeous. Lots of sunshine. Our next interview, our next discussion, is one that hits home for a lot of Londoners and about... Goodness gracious, it's hard to believe, but it was about five years ago, almost five years ago, uh, that Londoner Alex Photo tragically died in a crash here in the city. And now, if that name is familiar, it should be, because there was a lot of discussion about Alex in the wake of her passing, because she was just a phenomenal young woman, very, very uh, connected to her community and doing so much volunteer work, uh, just very well respected. And uh, sadly, as I said, she passed away in a uh, uh, a road a road incident and the response after her passing was just an outpouring of grief from everyone who knew her and from the individuals who learned about her because of of the coverage that that happened and and from her friends and family who spoke about her and her legacy uh has has lived on now alex was very very much involved with world vision and she was extremely passionate about access to water and clean water for people all over the world. And her former elementary school has taken up that torch. She went to St. Catherine's of Siena. And each year since Alex's passing, they have done a water walk. And joining me on the line now to discuss what that is all about and a little bit of uh, Alex's legacy is Barb Leokosis. She is a grade one teacher at the school. Barb, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today about the Water Walk. Good morning, and thank you for having me. So, Barb, obviously, uh, the story of Alex, um, it first came to the city's attention about five years ago uh, when, tragically, she passed away in a, in a road crash. Um, I know that it hit so many people very, very deeply when, when she passed away because she was an extraordinary young woman. Can you tell us about your connection to Alex? Yes, um, I taught Alex in uh, in grade two, so we're talking quite a few years ago. Um, and Alex, even as a young girl, was always the best friend to everyone and always an advocate for those who were in need of some kind. Um, and as she grew into her teen years, um, she took that a step further and she got involved in causes that meant a lot to her. Um, and the water walk is something that 
eventually came about because of her dedication. And now she was very much involved, I believe it was World Vision, correct? Can you talk yes. a little bit about her work um, that she did uh, to kind of, because she did a few trips overseas as well, eh? Yes, she really, she did. She, uh, we call her a World Vision ambassador. So she was very involved, as is her mother now, who's taken over the reins um, so that Alex's legacy lives on and her dream lives on. Um, and she took many visits overseas to build homes um, and to advocate for some of those underprivileged countries that weren't getting fresh water. That was her dream, was to bring that fresh water to families that needed it and to help out where she could. And it means so much then that the fundraiser, fundraising event and memorial event really what it's become every year, uh, the Water Walk then is in support of World Vision and water uh, or efforts to make sure that people have clean water. Can you tell us a bit about then the event that's happening tomorrow, what the purpose is, what you'll be doing with, with the kids at, uh, at the school? Yes. Well, this has become a huge event at St. Catherine of Siena, and 100% of the funds that we collect from this very involved and very generous community goes directly to World Vision. Um, we started five years ago, so this is our fifth annual. Um, we have parents involved. We have um, members of the, uh, of the community involved who've come every year to support us. Of course, um, Alex's uh, parents are also involved, and all the students. And if you show up at our water walk and you look out at our over 700 students, uh, they are dressed in a sea of blue um, on that particular day, so Friday afternoon. And it is the proudest I ever am of being a member of the St. Catherine of Siena community to see every student in our school wearing blue to support Alex. They collect donations from family and friends. A lot of them do things like make bracelets and sell them, do lemonade stands, rob their piggy banks. They do whatever they can. And what's so incredible about that is that a lot of these students didn't know Alex at all, but her story lives on. Um, we do have assemblies. We talk about her. We talk about her gifts as a person and what her dream was and what her vision was. And and we've taken that on as a school community. So the students do bring in their donations, they dress in blue, and depending on the age level of the students, they all bring or carry some form of water because the women in these in these underprivileged countries are carrying huge amounts of water along with all their children in order to bring fresh water back to their families. So we kind of recreate that in our community. So our smaller children in kindergarten, you know, they carry a one-liter bottle of water. Our grade ones to threes carry a two-liter bottle of water. And as the kids get older, they carry more water, and sometimes they have to work as a team. And then we do a walk around our huge block where our school is situated, um, and we walk together, kindergarten to grade eight, um, and we walk for Alex, and we walk for World Vision. It's amazing. It's a very moving uh, concept, and I, I think that it really, not only does it pay tribute to Alex in a beautiful way, and in a way that was very close to her heart, but I, I think that it, it very much allows children and all of the community members who take part to understand the realities that are happening in other parts of the world, in Canada and in London specifically. We are so privileged to be able to turn on a tap and have water that is clean, and even parts of North America don't have that, in honesty, like when we think of Flint, Michigan, and uh, certain um, uh, First Nations in our country alone, where they are constantly under boil water advisories, it is 
uh, just amazing to know that in London we are able to have that um, the privilege of being able to do that. We don't think of it as as being anything out of the norm, but for so many people around the world, and as I said, even here in Canada, uh, it is not something that is so easy. So I think it's great to um, have young children understand the impact and, and have a little taste of, a very small taste, of, of what it's like for other people and, and to literally kind of like walk a mile in their shoes. Absolutely. This has generated so much conversation in our classrooms and in our community and and has developed such an awareness of how lucky we really are and what's going on in the world. It's been an amazing learning experience for the children um, and their families, and it's brought us together as a community. It really is overwhelming, and it is really very um, touching to see us come together on this day. Absolutely. Now, Barb, if anyone wants to get involved or make a donation, how can they go about doing that? Um, we have, a, we have a, a website and some online donating. If you need some direction uh, with that, you could certainly call the school and somebody would be happy to direct you. Um, our water walk is on Friday, tomorrow, May 17th at 1.30 in the afternoon. Um, our door is open. If you are in our community and you'd like to join us, you know, we ask you to wear a blue shirt and walk with us. Uh, bring a container of water. Join us. We're one big family here at St. Catherine of Siena, and our door is always open. That's wonderful, and it's uh, certainly, uh, you know, I, I did not know Alex, but from all of the past years of coverage and in the wake of, of her immediate passing, having heard so much about her, I feel like she would just be so happy to know that this that her community and, and London at large has, has taken on this initiative and are supporting uh, something that was so close to her heart. So, Barb, thank you so much for all the work that you've done with the school community, and uh, we wish you all the best tomorrow for the event. Oh, it's definitely a a team effort, and thank you so much. So you've heard it there. If you're interested in donating, you can uh, call the school and get involved. You can show up and and carry some water in memory of Alex's photo. Before we go to the break, I just want to acknowledge a tweet from Andy, who's listening out there, who has kindly let me know that it's Michael Landsberg that I was thinking of in that last segment, who said, uh, in terms of a mental health, it's sick, not weak. So thank you to Andy uh, for helping me out there as Michael's name escaped me and I could see his face. You ever have those moments where you know exactly who you're talking about, but their name or some other detail that you're trying to recall is just, it's just out of reach and you can't think of it. So thank you again to Andy. The individual I meant to quote was Michael Landsberg. We need to take a break for news with the lovely Jacqueline LaBelle. She has all the latest details from here at home in London and across Canada, around the world, all that good stuff. We will be back on London Live right after this. Welcome back to London Live. As you can tell, it is not Mike Stubbs. It's Jess Brady and filling in for him this week. He's on vacation. He will be back on Tuesday after the long holiday weekend, the Victoria Day long weekend, which I'm sure everyone is very much looking forward to. I am. I know that. It should be good. Who doesn't like a long weekend? It'll be really good. There's going to be a lot of people out on the roads traveling to and from uh, different destinations, either here in town or maybe they're doing a little traveling, getting out of the city, going to see friends and family. One thing that I want to make sure no one does while they're out traveling is texting and driving, especially... 
in light of this new survey, or not a survey, but it's a study that's just been uh, published in the report. Well, this report has gone into the JAMA Pediatrics. So I believe that's the Journal of the American Medical Association. So their pediatric report. And the uh, headline of this study is not a good one, folks. It says more than half of parents say they text while driving. Now, these are American uh, study results, so they're not talking about Canadians. But still, it's not great. Apparently, 52% of millennial parents, so those who are aged 22 to 37, and 58% of older parents said they thought it was never safe to text and drive. But almost two-thirds of parents have read texts while driving, and more than half of them have also written texts. And this was a survey of 435 parents in 45 U.S. states. So, not very uplifting stats now. Now, Kelly is, is sitting across from me in the producer's booth. She's in with Andrew again today, and she's she's wagging her finger at uh, those parents who admit to that. Well, I mean, I'm glad, first of all, that they're admitting it, because admitting there's a problem is the first step to fixing it, right? Right, right. Because, you know, it's just really not a risk worth taking. Now, joining me on the line from the CAA is Elliot Silverstein. And he's, you know, he's had a chance to look over these results and the CAA has done their own uh, data collection on distracted driving, texting and driving. Uh, and so he's going to tell us a little bit about that. First of all, Elliot, thanks for joining us. And tell me, uh, what was your reaction to these, these stats in this report from the U.S.? Well, I think that, you know, what we saw from the, uh, the report that came out, it's not, it's not entirely surprising in the sense that um, a lot of people are, are reacting and trying to multitask, um, especially when they're on the roads, trying to get uh, to and from. And uh, certainly, you know, regardless of age, it is becoming a, a challenge. And I think that this uh, certainly reinforces the, the reminders that driving is a, is, a, is a privilege, and especially in Ontario, it's a privilege, not a right, and that uh, you need to focus on one thing on the roads, and that is driving safely. I found it was very interesting that they talked specifically about um, millennials and and their uh, the way that we've kind of come up with uh, the digital age and we've a lot of us have have had um, uh, cell phones and other electronic devices for quite a while as we've been adults um, and and so maybe sometimes that contributes to uh, our inability to set the phone aside even though we've also had a ton of messaging for our entire lives about the importance of not being distracted behind the wheel. I absolutely think, and I agree that there has been a lot of messaging over the years. I think the difference what we see with millennials is they're the generation that grew up getting their licenses while they had technology accessible to them. So they were the ones that went through G1 and G2 levels, got their licenses, and always had a cell phone or some sort of technology with them. So um, day to day, I mean, while we all rely on our phones at different points of the day, this is the generation that is most entrenched with their technology and didn't have a driving career prior to that. So I think that's where the the differences with other generations and other age brackets that, that still drive distracted. I don't want to uh, uh, create the misconception that, that only millennials are the ones that are driving distracted, but certainly they're the ones that didn't have an experience otherwise. That's true. It's a harder habit to break when it's kind of what you've known your entire driving career. Absolutely. I think, you know, again, as you said, it's a very hard habit to break because, again, they've only known of that. They know about the risks. They're certainly aware of the messaging. But I think that, you know, as we look at it from everybody, regardless of your age, you know, the, one of the first things you do in the morning is check your email, check your messages throughout the day you're checking it. We've become so reliant on this. It's an important cultural and, 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 and personal change to put that phone down, put the phone away and focus on the road. 
It's funny, earlier in the afternoon, I was in the newsroom and in, in the span of, of just 30 seconds, I heard notifications going off on multiple people's phones. Uh, so it is a testament to how connected we all really are. Um, interestingly, talking about that awareness, Elliot, that you've mentioned, uh, CAA put out some uh, some data and, and research results earlier this year. And one of the stats that I find very interesting is that uh, overwhelming majority of people surveyed, about 91% uh, of Ontario drivers, believe that distracted driving has worsened. So we realize there's a problem. Uh, it's a matter of whether really we're addressing it or not. It definitely, people see, see that it's an issue. It's happening more and more. And I think if you were to stop at a red light during rush hour in any part of the province, you would see people that are not starting their engines when they're when they're the latest turn green. So I think that we see a lot of these challenges on the road. People, people identify with it. I think the challenge is that people don't necessarily see themselves as the problem, that they can multitask. It's the other person that is the challenge. And what we did is we did the survey shortly after the laws had changed in Ontario, so the penalties were significantly higher, and they included the loss of license upon conviction. So we wanted to get a sense of where people's uh, perceptions were. Um, And it certainly shows that people are also more willing to admit that they are driving distracted. Yes, and I think sometimes people don't realize that the behaviors they're engaging in are actually distractions. Sometimes they think, oh, that's not me. I'm not on my phone. But it's not just necessarily uh, like a phone thing. Like anything could distract you technically. There are so many types of distractions in your car. I mean, whether it be uh, digital or otherwise. And I think that's the, the difference between some of the charges where people are being charged with distracted driving versus other factors that fall into the concept of careless driving. So whether you have children in the car or pets or, or you're trying to, to reach over to get you know, a cup of coffee. All these types of things can take your eyes off the road, and they are, in, in, its, in its true form, distractions. The laws that are around distracted driving are focused on technology. And really what we want to try and do and, and, and underscore to people um, is, is the reminder that before you get behind the wheel, make sure your GPS is set up. Make sure your car is in proper working order so that you don't have to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. These are all different types of distractions, but we want to make sure people are getting to and from safely. Absolutely. And another interesting thing that was uh, released in the data from CAA were the justifications for why people were distracted behind the wheel. Uh, You have some individuals, 41% said, oh, in case of an emergency, you know, I might pull out my phone, what have you. Uh, Another 41% said while they were stopped at a red light, oh, there's no harm there. And uh, stuck in traffic was another popular response at 36%. Absolutely, and, and and I think you know really what we see here is that is that perception that being stopped at a red light, being stuck in traffic, gives people the license to pick up their phones, and that's not the case. If you are operating a motor vehicle on the roads and you're using your phone, whether it be at a red light, stuck in congestion on a highway, you are still technically breaking the law when it comes to distracted driving. There's no email, there's no text message that's more important in somebody's life. When it comes to emergencies, certainly if you're calling 911 in the the case of an emergency, there are allowances through the laws to allow people to make those types of phone calls. So certainly there are different um, um, pieces to those pieces of legislation. But really, at the end of the day, if you're driving on the road, whether you're at a red light, stuck in congestion, stuck in a snowstorm, uh, stuck in holiday weekend traffic, it does not give you the right to pick up your phone. 
Absolutely. And I find that we've had a few um, a few stories that we've talked about on the show this week thus far that have really honed in on the necessity of people just being patient, taking a few more seconds to get things, uh, you know, just be smart about things. Don't make a rash decision. Uh, someone's life, their own life, uh, a driver's life is not worth a phone call or getting through a red light just a little bit faster. It's It's just be smart about things, really think about it and don't take unnecessary risks. Absolutely. I mean, really, at the end of the day, you know, driving, it is a responsibility to be focused on the road, looking out for other people on the road, whether they be, they be cars, cyclists, pedestrians, or otherwise. There's, there's, no, there's no rush in, in the sense that you have to pick up an email. The temptation is always there. You hear the, the alert go off and you reach for your phone or your, your desire is to want to reach for the phone. You know, I think if, if you fall into that temptation, make, take corrective action. Put it in your glove box. Make it out of reach so that you don't see it. Set up Bluetooth systems if you have them so you have an alternative measure. There are ways to, to get around the challenges if you, if you need to be in touch with somebody. But certainly we want to make sure that when you are behind the wheel, you have one particular responsibility, and that is driving safe. Absolutely. And, and do you think that it's just a matter of persistent and continued messaging that will finally get people to understand uh, the situation and the severity uh, of, this, of this situation? Like, is it just one of those things that's going to take time? There's no like magic bullet here. Education is, is critical. It, it is so vital in this, no different than when it was a generation ago when we talked about seatbelts and making sure people were buckling up and people, some people would, some people wouldn't. Even today, you still have a handful of the population that do not buckle up when they start driving. But the message has been clear on that. I think what it comes down to is we want to make sure people understand the risks. They understand their responsibilities and trying to educate it. It will take time and it will take people to understand it through, through um, experiences of hearing people being charged, unfortunately hearing people's stories where they've been injured because of a distracted driver. But certainly, I think from, from CAA's perspective and, and the government and other road safety partners, I think the message is, is continuing to be echoed that we want to make sure people understand that their driving is a responsibility and that, you know, through the education, through the awareness, through the next generation of, of drivers as they're in school right now, hearing about how you need to make sure you buckle up, that you make sure your phones are put away, those types of steps are going to help us get to, get to the measures that we need to have to make sure that our roads are absolutely as safe as possible. Absolutely. And I should say, we're looking for a silver bullet, not a magic bullet. A blender is not going to help us in this case. Uh, but hopefully continued messaging, as you've said, Elliot, is going to be the fix in this case. And we'll just have to be persistent and keep uh, having chats like this uh, to make sure people are getting the message and putting their messages and their phones away. So Elliot, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so now we've heard from the experts, we've heard about the stats. Now I want to hear from you, London. Call in. Tell me about your uh, best or should I say worst distracted driving stories. Did you catch someone texting? Did uh, you nearly see a, a crash that was easily avoidable uh, because of the person involved was was texting or just distracted in general? Um, I want to hear from you. This is a topic that really, uh, in the words of Peter Griffin, again, grinds his gears. It gets under his skin uh, about these sorts of things. And as it does for many of us, it's just putting all of our safety at risk. So call me, 519. 
1-866-353-2222. You can call us toll-free at 1-866-354-8255. The lines, guess what? They're open. I want to hear from you. Call us. Andrew, producer Andrew and Kelly, they want to take your calls and get you all set up. You can also tweet at me if you would like. Uh, and my Twitter handle is at JessBrady980. And you could even email if you wanted to. That's Jess at 980cfpl.ca. But the phone number is 643-2222. We need to take a quick break, but I want to see those calls coming in. Tell me your distracted driving stories. I want to hear them because the best way to stop this behavior is to talk about it and shine a light on it. So we need to take a quick break. We'll be back on London Live on 980CFPL. Welcome back to the program. We are on London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Again, I'm not Mike Stubbs. No, I'm filling in for him. He's on vacation this week. He'll be back with you on Tuesday. Uh, When we went to the break, I put out a call for your calls to talk about distracted driving, be it your worst slash best story uh, about distracted driving, if you caught someone texting or what have you. And we have a caller on the line. I'm so excited. Chris has called in. Hey, Chris, what's your story? Yeah, keep it simple. The new cars today, the new dash with all the information in that little TV screen, yep, is the most distractive thing you could ever give a driver. Ah, that's like, a good point a, of view. Yeah, it's a joke. I drove from Toronto to London in a brand new Buick from Milton to London on the four hundred one, and I never did find an AM radio. I tried on that screen, and I was distracted. You name it. Mm. And you got GPS. I didn't bother with that. Again, it would be a nightmare. Yeah. Yet they hammer you for a phone that's built into the car. Like, I don't know. It's crazy. Yeah, I think that that kind of speaks to what Elliot uh, Silverstein was talking about in terms of being prepared beforehand. So he was kind of saying, you know, you can make use of those tools that are in uh, our vehicles these days, uh, but make sure you're doing it before you set out on the road, which isn't always practical because sometimes when you're en route, you need to make a change or you you have to make a call and and maybe you're not familiar with the vehicle. Like you said, it was a brand new uh, vehicle and and maybe you hadn't had it for very long and and that does pose challenges. So I, I feel for you on that one. No, it was a rental, but that's beside the point. But you try and punch in a postal code into GPS yeah. when you're driving. Yeah, no, it's not It's not easy because then you're, you're navigating like two different sets of screens. You have the letters and yep. the numbers. And yeah, so at that at that point, you really would, would be in a better spot if you had a co-pilot to kind right. of uh, do the navigation. It's damn near a built-in TV screen. So what are you going to do? You're going to look at it. Yeah. No, it's true. No, it's it's a valid point, Chris. And uh, I thank you very much for your call. And, uh, you know, I, I think that um, uh, that we do have to navigate uh, the new digital age a little bit better when it comes to the vehicles, because they do present uh, a lot of conveniences. Uh, but there are uh, some drawbacks that we need to be mindful of. We have to figure out how to best utilize all those new tools that we have. Thanks yeah, very much but, for the call. Think of this. One more point. Yeah. If you live in London, you never leave London. You cannot buy a car without all that crap. Yeah, it it is pretty standard these days. I mean, it's uh, it's just as as uh, the tech evolves, that's what the car companies are doing. They they give us more options, not less, not fewer. I should say. Yeah. It's anyway. true. Well, thank you so much for the call in today, Chris. It was a pleasure chatting with you. Okay. Remember your dad.
Oh, okay. Bye. <laughs> Bye, Chris. Oh, Papa B getting a shout out on the airwaves. Hey, Dad. Chris says hi. <laughs> now, if you have a, a distracted driving story you'd like to share, again, you can call us at 519-643-2222 at 643-2222 or 1-866-354-8255. That's toll free if you're uh, calling from outside of the city. Maybe we have some regional listeners who are tuning in. Who knows? I don't know. Sometimes my cousins in PEI listen, but it's mostly in the morning. Because uh, my cousin Rick often is golfing in the afternoons. Um, but yeah, like give us a shout. Let us know if you have some uh, distracted driving experiences. Speaking of my parents, actually, they winter down in Florida. And the laws on distracted driving in Florida are a lot different. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I believe you are still allowed to talk on your phone. They are just updating the penalties uh, in the last little while. So there are changes afoot, if you will, in terms of what people are able to do down there. But my, my mom especially notices them, uh, the individuals who are on their phones or whatever, like they weave in and out of their lanes. And it's it's scary because if you're paying attention, which it should be, you're seeing all this bad behavior and you know that you're at risk. And uh, if you're driving defensively, it, it is it is a challenging thing to make sure that, uh, you know, you're keeping yourself safe and watching out for all the people who aren't doing what they should be. It's very tricky out there. Here in London, I uh, I can't help but look at individuals a little sternly when I pull up next to them or I see them uh, going through an intersection if they look down at their phones. Just, I think, two days ago, I was driving home from work and uh, I saw someone looking down at their lap while they were stopped at a, a stop sign. And I thought, well... <laughs> You're clearly on your phone, like get off of the phone because it was their turn to go in the intersection and to drive through. So it's very frustrating uh, when you see that type of behavior. It's just not safe. And I wish that people wouldn't do it. So that's my two cents worth. And Chris raises a good point about uh, those interactive screens on vehicles as they are now. Not the best sometimes. So make sure you're as best as you can setting all your GPS routes and uh, your Bluetooth connections before you move. I do that often with uh, Bluetooth in my car so that I can listen to Spotify uh, as I drive around the city. But, uh, you know, don't mess with it while you are actually driving. Keep your handheld phone in your purse, in your glove box, like Elliot from CAA was saying. Just keep it out of reach so you're not distracted at all. We need to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back after the news uh, with Jacqueline LaBelle, we're going to be talking to global correspondent Reggie Cicchini. He's based in the States down in Washington. We're talking about reaction to what seems like a rash of bills in uh, U.S. states being passed or at least debated restricting abortion access. So he's going to bring us some of the latest reaction from the states. Uh, and we'll talk about that coming up on 980 CFPL on London Live. Lies, subterfuge. It's not Mike, it's Jess Brady. <laughs> I'm filling in from this week. He's on vacation, as uh, I've been telling you, so you know that Mike's not disappeared. He's just on a very well-deserved rest. He will be back on Tuesday. Now, before we left for the break with news uh, with Jacqueline LaBelle, I told you that we were going to be talking about a situation in the States, uh, but really it's, it's something that is hitting home for a lot of people across borders. It, it's not just in the U.S. This is an emotional issue, uh, passions on both sides, but it is uh, something that's filling my timeline on Twitter, on Facebook, pretty much every single social media uh, platform, Instagram as well. There are comments and memes and just... Uh, 
a, a lot of reaction to the abortion debates that are happening in the states right now. There are bills that have passed in Alabama and in Georgia. There's debates ongoing in a number of other states, including Missouri, I believe. And in Alabama and Georgia specifically, they have passed, the legislatures there have passed a very restrictive um, new measures against abortion and it is a concerning time uh, for many, many people. There's real anxiety uh, from women and from other individuals. Uh, at the There's anxiety at this idea that rights are being stripped away, uh, rights that were entrenched with the Supreme Court ruling in the states of Roe v. Wade, uh, you know, uh, quite a long time ago. And there's a lot of political fallout at this point. And joining us now live on the line is Global News correspondent Reggie Cicchini. He's in Washington and he's he's going to fill us in on the current situation in the U.S. and uh, how things are playing out. Reggie, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to chat with us today. Good afternoon. So tell us a little bit about the situation today. Um, I, I've just, I, I'm sure you have experienced similar situations here with your social media feeds. We're seeing a lot of reaction, especially to Alabama and Georgia and, and the bills that have been passed there. Absolutely. And especially when you talk about the Alabama bill that was just passed over the last couple of days, because this now makes Alabama the state with the most intensive restrictions when it comes to uh, getting an abortion and, and how uh, and, and what can happen uh, if an abortion takes place. What this bill has basically done is made any kind of abortion uh, up to the point of where a woman's life is in danger illegal, meaning that the person who provides the abortion could receive something 10, maybe up to 99 years in prison. But there's an exception rule that wasn't put in place with this bill that has been put in place across a couple of other states. And that says that in the case of rape or in the case of incest, an abortion still is not allowed to be uh, is still not allowed to be obtained or be given, uh, meaning that, you know, this there, there are Democrats now and there are critics to this bill that are saying that this has now taken away uh, a woman's choice and is now, uh, you know, basically saying that the government has the control over a woman's body, at least if this bill is able to make it forward. It's distressing for a, a number of, of, of individuals like on both sides. Like I was saying, this is not just uh, a, a United States issue because people around the world are watching. And a place that is viewed the United States, at least traditionally, as being the home of the home of the free and the brave. Uh, these types of rulings and legislation really puts a dent in that reputation. I mean, obviously, uh, the, the, how the world views the United States at this point is uh, is in flux. And there has been a lot of damage done in the last uh, a couple of years, um, but this certainly does no favors. No, but this is also something that Republicans have been really trying for since the beginning days before Roe v. Wade, since mm -hmm. Roe v. Wade was put in place more than 40 years ago. And up until now, with Donald Trump in office, he's really been kind of making himself be this big leader of the Republicans that he never used to be when he was a Democrat or when he was an independent. Now saying that, look, I'm going to stand for Republican values. I'm going to stand for what the Republicans want to see happen across the United States. And this battle is now going to heat up. This this law that was put in place or at least signed by the Alabama governor last night uh, one of the things that she did was invoke uh, God in her sentence by saying that, you know, uh, the, the you know, an abortion shouldn't be legal because this is taking away uh, in roundabout terms, you know, a portion of, of life that was put in place by God. And there are now critics out there saying, well, this is not putting that church state separation uh, in place, which is supposed to be in place, according to the Constitution. So this is a fight that's been going on for 40 years. It's a fight that's going to continue. The big thing with this Alabama law, knowing full well,
well that it's not going to take place for at least another six months is that it's going to be up against a number of legal hurdles, uh, at least up to the six month point. And then as other states start to follow this route, we're likely going to see this turn into a Supreme Court battle, which is what anti-abortion activists are, are kind of looking for. And then by the time that happens, we're likely in the middle of the election cycle next year. So this is going to end up becoming a big talking point for the Democrats and for the Republicans. Absolutely. It seems like there's a lot of uh, response mobilizing, uh, just even uh, I'm anticipating uh, more marches like the March on Washington, the Women's March. I feel like that is going to continue. It it feels like this generation of individuals, um, not just millennials, certainly, because it's an issue that plenty of generations feel uh, strongly about. But I I feel like there's this groundswell of 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 uh, reaction to this. I feel like it's going to just continue. Absolutely. You're going to have grassroots organizations starting to pop up. You're also going to have uh, places like the ACLU saying that, look, civil liberties are at right are, are at risk right now uh, when, when the government and when legislatures are trying to take control of the body and the choice of a specific person. It's interesting to remember here that in Alabama, where this most restrictive law was, was signed last night, the majority of people who are in that state legislature are men. There are only four women. So something along the lines of 37 men are what made this decision and uh, what passed this law to be able to handle it off to uh, the governor. So this is going to be a big fight going forward. But Alabama is not the only place. There are several other states across the U.S. that either have mildly or severely restrictive uh, uh, measures in place for when it comes to abortion. Absolutely. Now, you've talked about this long political road ahead in terms of uh, potential challenges and all the way up to the Supreme Court. One thing that could take effect a little faster is uh, boycotts. This idea of um, a call to boycott Georgia because it has a very big entertainment portion of its economy. Uh, Marvel movies are filmed in Atlanta in that region. Uh, It's a a big part of its ongoing economy. And and I know that Stacey Abrams, uh, um, obviously a a rising and and, uh, established Democratic uh, star, um, she has said that she understands the push for a boycott in Georgia, but she doesn't. Uh, she doesn't want people to enact it. She's, I guess, she's hoping for other other options and other ways forward. But do you think that uh, that Georgia boycott will will gain some traction? Well, I mean, that's the diplomatic way of saying it. You know, she wants to see these boycotts happen, but doesn't actually want to have it happen because then it takes a financial toll on the state and it puts Mm -hmm. people who may not be at the kind of helm of these decision-making processes uh, in the crossfire by losing out on money. But the point being with these boycotts, this is something that Georgia has seen before just a few years ago when the law was put in place that basically took away the rights of transgendered people to be able to use the bathroom of their choice. There were a a number of companies up to and including Disney that basically pulled their money out and it took a big financial toll on the state. That's what we're seeing now. There are a number of big companies, big production companies, big Hollywood money gets pumped into Georgia. Uh, and, and, and there's the risk now that if this, uh, if this continues, I mean, there was, a, there was a bill that was put in place, this fetal heartbeat bill that says that an abortion can't take place uh, beginning in January after six weeks when most women don't even realize they're pregnant at that point. Uh, if this does take place, there could be another financial toll that, this, that, uh, that Georgia's gonna have to, going to have to suffer if Hollywood decides to pull their money out. So this is going to be one of those fights that, People are going to feel kind of at the heart uh, of, of how they feel and, and how they are, uh, you know, how they are uh, when it comes to voting, how they are when it comes to living, uh, living their life on a day to day basis, because there's a lot of things that, you know, might not add up. You might be in favor of the abortion bill, but you also don't want to see your state or you possibly lose any money at your job. So these are things that voters are really going to have to pay attention to as they head into 2020. Absolutely. It's so many personal impacts uh, all coming into play. And uh, as you said, you know, people are really going to have to make some choices and uh, keep their eyes on the debate and all of the uh, discourse going forward over the next few years. Reggie, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, we appreciate your insight in your reporting from Washington.
Thank you. Okay, well, we will take a quick break here. Uh, When we come back on London Live, a little bit of lighter fare, but it's also still a controversial topic. Would you eat a burger that's not made of actual meat? We've talked about this in the past, but now a uh, cattle association or federation from Quebec is uh, launching complaints about uh, a California company called Beyond Meat. They don't like it. And we'll talk a little bit more about that coming up after the break on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. We have about... just under 15 minutes left of today's show. Once again, I say this, it goes by so fast. Just I sit down, I feel like, and then poof, we have some great interviews and then it's over. It's amazing. (laughs) It's your Thursday afternoon edition of the show. Again, I am Jess Brady. I'm filling in for Mike this week. And to talk about this next story, I have the one, the only, Craig Needles sitting across from me in studio because I wanted to pick his brain on uh, on this next one. It has to do with meat that's not quite meat. You might say it's imposter meat. Imposter meat. <laughs> that's what I'm going to okay. call it. Okay, is this going to be a Soylent Green situation or what's going on here? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so well, this, the story is that uh, there's this California-based company and it's called Beyond Meat and the Quebec Cattle Producers Federation has filed a complaint with the Canadian Food Inspection Agency because of the company's ads. Uh, the issue seems to be that the company in its ads is calling it plant-based meat. And so that's gone out in recent tweets and some promo material. Uh, So the Canadian Cattle Producers uh, Federation, or rather Quebec, my apologies, Quebec Cattle Producers Federation, said uh, in a statement to the Canadian press, it can be plant-based protein, but don't say plant-based meat. And that's from the... uh, uh, from the aid of the Federation's Kirk Jackson. Meat has its own definition, and we want to hold up the, that integrity for the product we produce. Okay. So yeah. this this food is is currently uh, available at A&W Canada restaurants. Um, in their, their promo material for it, you've seen commercials, yep. Craig, and people seem to just love it. They think, oh, it's not it's not real meat. I would not have known that. Have you tried any products like this yet? I have not tried any products like that. I'm confused as to how these cattle ranchers think that people are going to not know what meat is. I think we all understand what meat is and what meat used to be, but they're protecting their business. I just don't, I think they're perhaps being a little overprotective. Perhaps. Now, the spokesperson uh, for the group uh, says... It cited some federal rules that food advertising cannot be false, misleading or deceptive or likely to create an erroneous impression regarding its character, value, quantity, composition, merit or safety. I'm going to go out on a limb here Mm -hmm. and say that their biggest selling point and that they're going to talk up a lot is the fact that it's not actually meat. Right. Which the fact that if you're a vegetarian, you can eat this. Guess what? Yeah. It's not real meat. So, yeah, like I understand they're afraid of of. this product cutting into their their market, and uh, I get that. I also think that there will always be a place. Well, I mean, I'm no, I'm no psychic. How am I supposed to know what's happening down the road? Uh, also, do psychics really know what's happening down the road? They and that's neither here nor there. Neither <laughs> here nor there. Um, but yeah, I just feel like there's always going to be a place for actual real meat. Absolutely. You know, whether it's a nice hearty sized steak, or if it's a roast beef, or if it's an actual burger. 
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more that, uh, and there are going to be fewer and fewer people perhaps that say they want to eat meat. We're seeing mm-hmm. a rise in the percentage of vegans and vegetarians yeah. and, and pescatarians. Also, and, the cost often yeah, is, is prohibitive it's for expensive. some people. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, but yeah, I don't think we're ever going to have a situation where if you want to go out for a steak, there's nowhere to go. Yeah. I don't think that's ever going to be the case. So I think that these uh, these these meat farmers are uh, are a little concerned about something that probably isn't going to really impact them negatively. Yeah. I mean, I think it will be like the overall push towards more plant-based uh, diets mm-hmm. in general. I don't I don't think it would necessarily be these beyond meat burgers themselves, but I I do understand uh, the the effort and the drive to you know uh, preserve their livelihoods uh, because they they like farmers and uh, cattle ranchers they feed this country and you know they do good hard work so I can understand wanting to protect their livelihoods very much but um, yeah I think just in general the cachet of these of these burgers and the whole point of them is being able to say free and clear we're not actually meat so I don't think that people will. Well, hopefully people won't be confused about that because it's literally right there. We're, yeah. we're not actually meat. Yeah, it, it, the, the, it's literally the advertising line that's used is, hey, this is not meat. This is something beyond meat, if you will. Uh, so you would think there would not be much confusion there, but what do I know? Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. Now, um, the Canadian Cattlemen's Association spoke with uh, uh, CTV National, and in their quote, they said, we're not saying what they should be called. I think what we're saying is what they shouldn't be called. I think we can leave that to them to sort that out. That's from Fawn Jackson, Um, followed up by saying, I think that having rules in Canada around labeling and marketing and advertising around food are there for a very good reason, and everybody needs to follow them. I just, in my unexpert opinion, I'm not, not an expert. I'm no lawyer. No. <laughs> uh, but I would say that I think it's pretty clear that it's like it's it's not saying it's no, meat. No. It's not they're not yeah. saying it's meat. And that and the other thing is the other the, the reason why they might have a, a potentially a leg to stand they think there's some sort of health concern or health risk here, but I think it's quite clear that this beyond meat product is probably better for you to eat than say a burger or whatever it happens to be. Who knows? I mean, I hope it is. If it's been approved by for consumption in in the in the country, right. you got to think that uh, Health Canada is is doing its due diligence. So I'd I like hope, to believe that. I would like to believe it. <laughs> I hope so. No, uh, no, no knocks against Health Canada. You're working hard. Everyone works hard. I'm gonna say that. Um, now. I think we're going to talk about this more uh, on tomorrow's show. I have a feeling I might have a guest on to speak to this situation specifically and also perhaps the rise in uh, meat alternative um, options. So I'll, I'll, I'm going to stick a pin, a fork, <laughs> in this <laughs> nice. meat discussion. <laughs> a toothpick, perhaps. <laughs> a toothpick, perhaps. And while I have you in here, Craig, yes. you have uh, another edition of your Friday Roundtable tomorrow. Yeah, yes. yeah. We've got the Craig Needle Show from 9 to noon tomorrow, as always. And uh, uh, sitting uh, perhaps in the very chair that I'm sitting in right now (gasps) will be former London mayor, former London member of parliament, former federal cabinet minister Joe Fontana will be here with us tomorrow, along with former city councillor Hollywood Cheryl Miller and Tam Center Deputy Mayor Kelly Elliott. Fantastic. That sounds like a a rip-roaring lineup. It's going to be a good show. And uh, yeah, Joe was in a couple weeks ago and I got all these emails saying, oh wow, it was great having Joe Fontana on the roundtable. So he is is back for your listening pleasure, London. By popular demand. By popular demand. Quite literally. Quite literally. (laughs) All the people called in. All the people and emailed. Well, that's fantastic. It sounds like it's it's going to be a great show. And Craig, thank you so much for coming into the studio and chatting with me about meat. Glad to chat. <laughs> or not actual not, meat. Yeah, beyond, beyond meat. meat. 
Let's be very clear about that. Don't want Health Canada getting mad at us for breaching guidelines. So Beyond Meat uh, and uh, Beyond This Show, there will be the Craig Needle Show tomorrow. So anyway, thank you so much, Craig. We need to take a quick break, which is probably a good thing because my next topic may just put you off your lunch. Um, it's a global <laughs> a global story, uh, and it has to do with what we do in the pool. I'm going to leave you with the title called Half of Americans Admit to Using a Swimming Pool as a Bath. Here's why you shouldn't. You would think that would be self-explanatory, but Global's going to tell us about it, and I'll I'll chit-chat about it coming up on London Live on 980 CFPL. Hello. Welcome back to London Live on 980 CFPL. As you can tell, I am not Mike Stubbs. I do not have the voice of a god. I'm just Jess Brady, your usual morning news anchor on 980 CFPL. But because Mike is on vacation this week, they let me fill in, which is very exciting. So I'm uh, glad to be here with all of you. This is your Thursday edition of London Live. So before the break, I said that uh, this next topic might put put you off your lunch. So hopefully you've already had lunch. Hopefully you had it a little while ago. We're nearly at 3 o'clock. But this this is the story that I was referencing. It's from Global News. And the title is Half of Americans Admit to Using a Swimming Pool as a Bath. Here's Why You Shouldn't. Hmm. All right. I'll bite. Let's let's find out. Nearly half of Americans say that they've rinsed off in a swimming pool after exercise, after yard work, or even gone swimming as a substitute for a shower. That's according to a new poll. Now, see, I can understand you want to cool off. You've mowed the lawn or something like that. Yeah, that's 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 hard work. You want to cool off. That's the point of a pool. I'm, I'm somewhat on board with that. And uh, the next line in the article, oh, and yes, people still pee in the pool. The poll, conducted by Saks Media Group on behalf of the Water Quality and Health Council, an industry association, is an annual look at Americans' pool-related behaviors. It found that 40% of people admitted to peeing in the pool as an adult, and half of people said they didn't shower before diving in. I will say that most public pools have a policy where you're supposed to shower off before you jump in. Now, whether or not people actually do that, that's, you know, probably a toss up. Aside from being just gross, these unhygienic activities can affect the chemical balance of the pool. True. That's according to this council. After exercising your yard work, this uh, spokesperson said you generate all kinds of organic matter. Could be sweat, could be dirt, could be oil, grease, sunscreen, whatever. All those things are the reacting or the reactant to the disinfectant in the pool. So they may utilize all the disinfectant. Well, that's not good. There is not an infinite amount of disinfectant in a pool. It generally gets added gradually as the water is filtered. True say. When chlorine contacts sunscreen or another contaminant like makeup, it changes. It's no longer able to disinfect, but just becomes a contaminant itself in the water. When that happens, there's less chlorine left over to tackle serious pathogens in the water. Ugh, that's, that's not a very fun stat to think of. Pool pathogens are serious business. According to the study from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, 27,000 people got sick in the U.S. between 2000 and 2014 as a result of dirty pool water. The top culprit was a protozoa, which can cause diarrhea and is actually resistant to chlorine. Okay, I'm going to stop reading now because bottom line, here's what we need you to do. Please try not to pee in the pool. That's it's not a good idea. Don't, for the love of God, poop in the pool. (laughs) 
Please don't. I'm a former lifeguard. Just just don't do it. That's a mess to clean up. Please don't. And you just got to filter everything properly, okay? So don't do that. Also, take a shower. Just rinse off real quick before you jump in. Baseline, three things. Don't pee, don't poop, please shower. That's it. We're good. And on that bombshell, <laughs> that is the end of your Thursday edition of London Live. News is next with Jacqueline LaBelle. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you tomorrow.